confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. To discover the most fundamental laws of nature, we don't just have to probe deep inside atoms. We must also turn our gaze elsewhere, to the stars and to the distant galaxies right out to the furthest reaches of the universe. In the past 20 years, many of the most instructive clues about fundamental physics have come from cosmology. During that time, nothing has shaken physicists more than the astonishing discovery that the expansion of the universe is not slowing down as everyone expected, but is actually accelerating. One leading theoretical physicist mentioned to me that the question was, as she put it, way above my pay grade. My name is Graham Farmlow, and I'm the author of The Universe Speaks in Numbers, about the relationship between mathematics and fundamental physics. Quite a lot of the book is about advances in our understanding of the cosmos, from Newton's path-breaking thinking in his Principia, to Einstein's use of his theory of gravity to set up modern cosmology. The interviews in this series have mostly been with theoretical physicists and mathematicians, so I thought it was time to talk with a cosmologist. When I was visiting the Mathematical Institute at Cambridge a few months ago, I interviewed Martin Rees, more formally Lord Rees, He's the UK's Astronomer Royal, a former President of the Royal Society, and also formerly Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. As a thinker, he's profound, open-minded, yet conservative with a small c, always worth listening to carefully. I asked him about the golden years when Einstein's theory of gravity came of age in the 1960s, how black holes became established as real cosmic objects, about the multiverse and the future of basic science. I began by asking Martin Rees about his early years, how he went from being a Shropshire lad to a student of cosmic matters at the University of Cambridge. Well, I I joined uh, the research group under Dennis Sharma in 1964 in October, and he was very versatile, and so most of my work ended up being really closer to astrophysics and cosmology. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, this was a time when uh, high redshift had been discovered for the first time, first quasars, and, of course, the microwave background. So I got involved in all those things. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky to be a spectator at the early developments of the subject, mm-hmm. and also in a group that was uh, developing relativity because um, we were all aware of Penrose's discoveries and uh, mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking. So let's let, let just, just move back a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we have a great great theory of gravity of uh, which Einstein principally uh, set out mm-hmm. and you came in at a time when it was 
starting to be possible to, to, to make really good tests of it. Uh, That's right. More than the well known. Observed phenomena where it was more than just a tiny correction. Yeah. And so, in a sense, you were born at the right time, so to speak. Yes. Would that, is that a fair statement? Yes. Um, okay. So, tell, tell us a bit about that experience of being you know, right at the forefront of this. I know it's a cliche, but this kind of golden age of uh, astrophysics and cosmology. Well, I think there was a lucky confluence between the time when the evidence of the Big Bang was emerging, initially from uh, high redshift sources, and then, of course, from the microwave background, and evidence for compact objects, uh, neutron stars and black hole candidates Mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1960s. And also at the same time, uh, the Renaissance in relativity theory triggered more than anything else by Roger Penrose had a more mathematical background Roger Penrose was a fine mathematician who turned his attention to the real world and became one of the great pioneers of modern relativity theory what did Martin Rees make of this work at the time I remember, um, it must have been 1965, when he came and gave a talk in Cambridge about uh, trapped surfaces, which is his first work on uh, singularities. Mm. And um, I didn't understand much about it, but it was clear to me right from then that uh, Roger Penrose was a very special person, not only brighter than most of us, but thinking very differently from most of us. And indeed, his geometrical insights make him very special, even among eminent mathematicians. And so that's the first time I encountered him, and of course I've seen him on and off ever since. Uh, Just a a bit of an insight into his collaboration with Stephen Hawking, Mm. which of course is remembered now because that was... uh, that made a big difference to black hole physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. what, what, did you see that take shape at all? Well, what I do remember is that uh, where Stephen Hawking was two years ahead of me, he was in his third year mm. as a student when I started, but uh, Dennis Sharma told him and other relativists in the group to go down and listen to Roger Penrose's lectures in London, which Roger was then in London, mm-hmm. I think at Birkmeck College, mm-hmm. Old King's, and uh, he was giving lectures on this. And so the hotline to these new ideas was mm-hmm. uh, Roger's lecture course. And mm-hmm. uh, I know these students went down to hear it. I just wonder if there is some uh, 2020 hindsight here, because... He would have been quite an unusual character, wouldn't he, uh, Roger, in, in the f- observational astronomers or what have you, to have someone very, very mathematical yes. coming in and bringing in these relativistic thoughts in here. That must have been quite unusual. Well, I think it was Dennis Sharma who persuaded Roger um, to take an interest in relativity um, and cosmology, oh, well, and, um, yeah. uh, which Roger's PhD had been purely mathematical. Right. And, of course, relativity benefited from these new mathematical techniques. Yeah. So it was a, a, a meeting of people mm. coming from the two backgrounds which mm. led to these developers of relativity. But you you didn't get interested in the mathematical side, did no, you? No, no, I, I didn't. I was more interested in the phenomena, um, the first quasars, and trying to understand how they radiated. Was that a matter of taste, incidentally, or what, 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 what was your...? Well, I think a matter of taste and uh, lack of competence in the mathematics, because I had studied mathematics, but I... Here at Cambridge, yeah? Here in Cambridge. Mm. And um, I knew I didn't want to be a mathematician, and I didn't have the mindset of those who were going to be mathematicians. I wanted a more synthetic style of thinking, mm. and I thought quite seriously of doing economics. Really? It was yeah. two of my good friends who'd done maths, mm. Arthur Descriptor and David Newbury, mm. who are both professors here now. Mm. Um, they diverged that way and I thought quite seriously of going that way but uh, by a series of accidents I ended up in the mathematics department just because someone turned down a research studentship and I got it. In, in, in the mathematics department? You were? Well, in, in applied mathematics. Oh, right. With the AMTP. Oh, I see. Right, OK. Yeah, yeah. But you weren't a 50... You, you wouldn't consider yourself a mathematician? No, I wouldn't. No, no OK. Yeah. 
When Rees was in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at Cambridge, he was focusing on trying to understand the cosmos. What were some of the highlights of his early years in the field? Well, learning about the micro background and its interpretation. and That, that sealed the Big Bang, yes. That sealed the Big Bang, uh, where previously there had been a controversy mm. uh, led by Martin Ryan, people in Cambridge, mm. about uh, evidence for cosmic evolution from radio source currents, which mm. was pretty compelling, I thought. But uh, what came to the case, obviously, was a micro background. Mm-hmm. And within two years, we had all the detailed calculations of... Uh, uh, element synthesis and the Big Bang and all that. Mm-hmm. So that was very rapid development. And then we had um, neutron stars and pulsars in 1967. And uh, th- that again was very quickly settled. Black holes on the observational side were rather slower to uh, develop consensus around because the data on galactic nuclei was harder to interpret. But uh, that's something which I've, I worked on from the uh, later, I'd like to probe that because I, I remember the first time I met you, mm. right? We were talking, you, I, um, I, I'd seen you give the lecture on black holes, mm-hmm. and I, I just perhaps be, be over skeptical, but I was just wondering mm. whether professional people like you were absolutely certain that they existed. And I remember that I, 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 you were being slightly evasive about this, mm. as I recall, and I asked yeah. you if you'd put your family's life on it, and you yeah. said you wouldn't. No, well, I think the, <laughs> the evidence wasn't compelling until until the late 70s. The, the reason was that the, the behaviour around the centres of galaxies is very complicated on many different length scales, mm. and it was very hard to actually identify what was going on at the mm. centre. Mm-hmm. So I understood the radiation mechanisms, but to discriminate between a dense cluster of stars and one big black hole in a galactic mm. nucleus wasn't really something you could clearly do mm. until much later. So um, although, I mean, there were ideas in the early 60s and then the very important paper by Lyndon Bell in 69, which showed why it was natural that there should be black holes. Then they tilted the opinions of people, but it wasn't clear until the late 70s, I would say. But even before then, it seemed to me that uh, certain people of a mathematical bent, so to speak, they were talking about them as if they were real. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. yes. But people expected them, and um, as the evolution of massive stars, we mm-hmm. understood fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the supermassive ones in black hole, in galactic centres, mm-hmm. were not quite so well understood at that time. It seemed to me that a good deal of the progress in cosmology was due to the improvements astronomers had made to their detectors and to their observational techniques. Does Rees agree? Yes, and we have to say 95% of the progress is due to instrumentation improvements, ah. uh, not to armchair theorists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You use a big smile on your face as you, uh, <laughs> as you, <laughs> you slap down the armchair yeah, theorists. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but, I, but I, do you know, I, I think you would agree. Uh, well, I am an armchair theorist myself, of course. Well, yes, I do, but, but nonetheless, yeah. you're, you're, you, you've got both feet in the data. I mm. mean, uh, yeah. uh, but mm. uh, you, you, you could say these days, I think, that there are some people who are armchair theorists who barely look at the data who are thinking right. about the... Uh, yes. but, but I've always been interested in the phenomena. And um, uh, now it's everything from the, the very early universe to exoplanets, um, which are interesting. But uh, I've been lucky, really, to always be in an environment close to observers. One of the most controversial topics in modern cosmology is the multiverse. The idea that our universe might be one of many, each created in its own Big Bang. It's always amused me that the intellectually cautious Martin Rees was one of the pioneers of this idea much decried by critics who think it wild and even unscientific. What does Rees think of the current debate about the multiverse concept? 
I think the simplest answer I would give is that uh, Andre Linde 30 years ago had a model mm -hmm. uh, of inflation this after, because inflation was developed in the early 1980s very very rapid expansion yeah, of the yes, okay. universe um, yeah. and uh, if you make particular assumptions about the physics of the inflationary phase mm -hmm. then you naturally get what he called eternal inflation so at least that's one specific model which predicts multiple big bangs mm. and there are many others of course at the time so I think there are models uh, which predict a multiverse and um, then of course subsequent to that there were string theories which suggested that uh, there could be different vacuum states, which would mean that the different big bangs were cooled down governed by different physical laws. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, the string theory is even more speculative than cosmology. Indeed, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, um, but, but, but I think the, the, there's no reason to, um, to disbelieve them. Mm -hmm. um, we just don't know about them. And uh, as regards whether they're part of science or not, um, we may not directly observe the aftermath of other big bangs, but um, I think what would make us take these theories seriously would be if we understood the physics of material at the inflationary phase well enough to know whether it has the properties which uh, Linde's model requires. If it has those properties which uh, gives inflation, as Linde said, it naturally predicts that, then we would take that prediction seriously, because it's a heresy to think that you have to be able to test every prediction of a theory. You have to be able to test enough predictions of a theory to gain confidence in it. And if we had a, um, a theory that applied to physics of 10 to 16 GeV, mm. some kind of unified theory, uh, which was vindicated because it explained some features in our low-energy world, mm -hmm. okay, and was therefore taken seriously, mm. we would then take seriously its predictions even in domains where we couldn't observe them, including, say, the um, uh, uh, eternal inflation model. Just like in the case of Einstein's relativity, we believe what it says about the insides of black holes which we can't observe mm -hmm. because we have been able to test it in many contexts where we can observe it. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that um, the, the multiverse, uh, the idea that there was many big bangs, is just one variant, and uh, we will only know if it's correct when we understand the physics of 10 to 16 GeV. Which is, if you'll forgive the mix, uh, yeah. the, 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 but it's not a million miles away from where we are now. No, that's right. Um, so, uh, OK. And when I think of uh, uh, the, the fact that, you know, when I was a student, the question of whether there was a Big Bang at all was debatable, whereas now we can trace history back to a nanosecond mm -hmm. with a few percent precision and great confidence. Then in the next 50 years, it's not implausible to believe we'll take the next big step. When I was a student in the 1970s, I saw the physics of the very large, astrophysics, come together with the physics of the very small, particle physics. Experts began to see them as part of one subject, astroparticle physics, with particle theorists contributing to the thinking about the hot, dense origins of the universe in the Big Bang, and cosmologists contributing insights into new types of matter. How did Rees view this trend? The links are manifold now. There's obviously the straightforward link between Elmer Paddock's and the early Big Bang, which mm. was done in, in the late 1960s. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, later, of course, Candace for Dark Matter. It's still a mystery what it is, but uh, these are some kinds of particles we don't yet know about. Mm -hmm. um, and also, of course, another topic of my own interest is extremely high-energy particles produced in gamma-ray bursts and such mm -hmm. like, where one can uh, um, perhaps observe conditions that could never be produced even in the biggest accelerator. Many of the biggest experiments and observations on the natural world these days are so expensive that it takes international collaborations to fund them. 
Is Rees worried that we may be approaching a time when fundamental physics, especially experiments on subatomic particles, is just too expensive, even for governments of wealthy countries? Well, I think that uh, that may be true insofar as we depend on uh, accelerator-type experiments, because obviously um, the low-hanging fruit uh, emerged by the 1970s. Mm. And uh, if you take accelerator physics, it hasn't told us very much. I mean, the most important observational or experimental development in physics, in particle physics since the 1970s, is probably neutrino masses, which came from underground Mm -hmm. experiments and lots of accelerators. And so I think it is true that uh, um, the accelerators are, are going to give decreasing returns for each extra money spent. Mm -hmm. And that's going to perhaps uh, reopen interest in tabletop experiments and also in the way in which we can make use of the fact that the universe has done experiments for us under far more extreme conditions than we could ever achieve. So that's been the case for some years. It has, yes. And just as, you know, if you look back in the early history of particle physics, they had cosmic ray data before the accelerator took over. And they go back and have to depend on um, the mm. data we get from astronomy and space. But, of course, it could very well be that um, particle physics will become a rather sort of slow-moving and, in a sense, complete branch of physics, just like nuclear physics is. And fewer people work on nuclear physics now than in the past because mm-hmm. they feel it's cleared up. And, mm-hmm. um, and so particle physics may go that way. And, of course, there are other people who are sort of ultra-reductionists who think that that something is far more important than anything else. And uh, mm-hmm. and they will say this is bad news for science, whereas I would say that uh, this has never been more than 2% of science. Mm-hmm. 2% of scientists work on it. Mm-hmm. 2% of a science budget goes on accelerators. Um, and uh, the other 98% will forge ahead. In Cambridge, I've observed a noble tradition of asking questions that should only be asked after 9 o'clock at night. Questions that are too speculative or ill-formed to be taken too seriously, but nonetheless are amusing to contemplate. So I thought I'd ask Rhys one of these questions. If some higher being were to offer him answers now to a few pressing questions about modern cosmology, which questions would Rhys ask? Well, I think, were there many Big Bangs or one? Oh, right. So um, the multiverse question, that's central, right? Well, but, well I think it's, it's, it's important. And it's linked to the question of whether um, the different Big Bangs would um, be governed by different physics, which is a string theory, yeah. uh, which is entirely relevant to uh, um, what's what I would call anthropic reasoning, which right. is how surprised should we be about the properties of our universe. Mm-hmm. And indeed, that was my first entree into the subject, thinking mm-hmm. about those issues. Um, so I, I think to to see if uh, we can uh, have a fourth Copernican revolution, uh, which uh, says there are many Big Bangs, not just one, and uh, uh, they display a variety of conditions. Mm-hmm. That may turn out to be false, um, but I'd like to know if it's false or true. Okay. And I think I'd like to know also about uh, any evidence for life on any of these exoplanets. I think that's probably the most fascinating question, and I think we will have answers to that probably in 20 years by uh, having enough data on the uh, spectra of the atmospheres of exoplanets to see if there's any evidence for for life and also a better understanding of the origin of life from uh, uh, chemists. Finally, I asked Rhys the advice he would give to a young, talented physicist trying to decide which area of research to focus on. What would he recommend? 
Well, I'd recommend astrophysics because uh, uh-huh. the, the 60s and early 70s, we talked about, were clearly an exciting phase. But if I look at the most recent five years, we've had exoplanets, we've had gravitational waves, we, we've had wonderful, more precise data on the early Big Bang from the Planck spacecraft. So I would say that it's uh, very, very exciting. Um, and I would also give them the advice that they would have to get involved in numerical simulations. Uh-huh. Because what, what is really made me feel a bit of an academic dinosaur is that most of the things I've worked on, flows around black holes, cosmic jets and all that, Mm. gamma ray bursts, they are now um, being understood much better by the availability of high-resolution computer codes. And uh, therefore, I advise young people who want to work in those areas um, to uh, develop some competence in the use of these codes because it's through these computer simulations that we have uh, developed our understanding enormously. 20 years ago, they weren't powerful enough to get results that were both surprising and believable. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, uh, you can really do a simulation of magnetic fields in a disk spinning around a black hole mm-hmm. and see what mm-hmm. kind of jet it produces mm-hmm. and believe the results and compare it with the data. And also for the uh, formation of galaxies and the nature of the dark matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've learned a huge amount from the simulations uh, and matching them to, to data. So I'd advise a person to... Um, Think of astronomy and astrophysics as an exciting frontier subject, um, and its development will depend on better instruments on the ground and in space, but also on the availability of better computer simulations. I doubt whether Martin Rees has ever uttered a rash word, at least in public. His advice is always worth listening to, well-informed, measured and utterly reasonable. It was good to hear that he'd recommend young students to try their hands at studying the cosmos, just as he chose to do over five decades ago. When I was researching The Universe Speaks in Numbers, several leading physicists pointed out to me that cosmology was perhaps the discipline most likely to bring revolutionary discoveries to theoretical physicists. It's amusing that Dirac speculated that this would be the case 80 years ago in his great Scott lecture, The Relation Between Mathematics and Physics. In recent years, no observation has puzzled theorists more than the discovery of the accelerating expansion of the universe. That expansion appeared to be caused by the energy of empty space, also known as dark energy, a quantity that theorists had been able to calculate for decades using the basic field theory of subatomic particles. The result exceeds the astronomer's measurement by the mind-blowing factor of 10 to the power 120, That may well be the most inaccurate quantitative estimate made using well-established theories in the entire history of science. The astronomer's measurement has demonstrated that something is rotten in the state of our understanding of space-time. The universe has spoken to us, but we really have no idea what it's saying.